1: I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, I'm honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Bruce Hemming. He's the executive director of the Helix Center Core Lab and president and CEO of Microbe InnoTech Laboratories, Incorporated, based in St. Louis, Missouri. Dr. Hemming received his doctorate in plant pathology from Montana State University in Bozeman. He was an adjunct professor at St. Louis University as well as the University of Missouri St. Louis and a visiting faculty member for the Institute of Genetics Education at the University of Wisconsin. During his 10 years at Monsanto, he was responsible for multidisciplinary teams involved in original research in the agricultural food production areas of microbiology and plant pathology. He is also the author or co-author of more than 40 peer-reviewed scientific journals and industrial publications, including a textbook on iron nutrition in plants and microorganisms published by Academic Press. I was very interested to speak with Dr. Hemming because it was his lab that was responsible for testing urine and breast milk in the Moms Across America study for the presence of glyphosate, which is the active ingredient in Roundup. Dr. Hemming, welcome. Welcome.
0: Well, thank you, Melinda. It's a pleasure to be with you.
1: I'm so interested in the work that you do. Tell me a little bit first about how you became interested in plant pathology and microbiology. I became interested
0: in microbiology, actually, as a child, probably because I was growing up in the space program era in the 50s and 60s, and so science was squished quite strongly in the various schools. My parents gave me a Gilbert chemistry set as a child. And uh, I remember having an explosion in my bedroom, uh, <laughs> coating ceilings with the crystal violet, things of that nature. Uh, they gave me also a microscope at that time. And so my interest towards uh, microscopy uh, continued. And that's how I basically finished my uh, bachelor's degree in microbiology.
1: Well, that's very interesting. So what was your first job out of your PhD program? Did you go to Monsanto then, or did you do some other work before then?
0: Well, after getting the Preacher of Hate and Discontent degree, PhD, <laughs> I went straight to Monsanto as actually one of the, probably the first 30 into the biotechnology program at Monsanto, and it was a, it was a great time and a great experience.
1: And you also developed some patents while you were there.
0: Yes, I was fortunate that uh, within the first year, I uh, and my colleagues uh, basically discovered that all fluorescent pseudomonads or these bacteria that fluoresce when the black light is shown on on them, they all lack the ability to break down milk sugar. And we were looking for a way of stamping the big red M, if you will, at that time on Monsanto onto an organism so that we could track and follow it in the environment. And so by... Discovering that uh, Jacob and Minot got the Nobel Prize for describing the first genes, the operon, the Lact-CY genes became a possibility for us to mark these organisms to track and follow them. So that was the first patent with Monsanto, yes.
1: So then you decided to leave Monsanto and start your own lab. Do you want to talk a little bit about that transition?
0: Sure. After about nine years of working with Monsanto, the uh, company was offering a voluntary separations program, and I opted to take that voluntary separations program. I had just been put on a committee that awarded technical excellence at all the different grade levels when I saw that budget cut in half. So I realized that despite corporate speak, that it would probably be in my best interest. I had been basically courted by the TEL, Pacific Northwest Labs, to head up their wetlands microbiology group, and so that's when I first began making my mental break with Monsanto. When the opportunity came to take the voluntary separations program, I, by that time I had decided I would wanted to have my own laboratory, and so the opportunity arose to found Microbiotech Laboratories, which is now in its 25th year of operations.
1: Well, I know that there's been a lot of concern about Monsanto's Roundup, And in particular, the active ingredient glyphosate is also concerned about the inert ingredients, but we know less about that. And the Moms Across America organization, it's my understanding that they reached out to you and you had the ability to test body fluids for the presence of glyphosate. And it's my understanding that it's very difficult to find labs that will do that test, even though the compound is so ubiquitous in our environment, especially in the Mississippi River watershed, that people are concerned about, gosh, is it in my food? Is it in me? What is it doing there? Yes, correct.
0: Glyphosate is unique amongst a lot of the herbicides and pesticides in that it is very, very water-soluble and a very small, simple synthetic molecule. And therefore, to analyze it is typically a little more complex than your typical herbicides or pesticides with their phosphorylated groups and so forth. So we have been testing glyphosate for a number of years, probably on the order of five or six years, when two years ago, Moms Across America called up just after Christmas and asked, they said that they had searched the country trying to find someone that would test for glyphosate in water, urine, or mother's breast milk for an individual. And I indicated well, I can understand the problem. The problem typically is is that glyphosate is analyzed uh, in the classical way by uh, what we call pre-column derivatization. So you basically have to derivatize or make derivatives out of glyphosate and then extract them and then place them on the LC, what we call liquid chromatograph mass spectrometer or tandem mass spectrometer, which then enables the determination of glyphosate in the original sample. The problem is, is that's a half-million-dollar instrument, typically, and therefore, those that have the instrument are running hundreds of samples through them, typically of soil samples in the business side of things. So for an individual to process a sample, it normally at that time it would have cost somewhere between $300 and $600 for a single sample, if they could even get someone to do it, which was their problem. I indicated that we had been testing for four or five years using a different method, certainly a validated method, and that is what's called a competitive ELISA assay. So I indicated that we had been doing it for $145 per sample and that we would be glad to test out their network. Their network would have to do two things. One, they would have to sign a form releasing the data to moms across America, and we would provide the data to the individual as well as moms across America at the same time. The second item was that with individuals, then we would add a payment up front by credit card. And so that's how we began testing. And I told them we would do it for a little over a month and then evaluate. I told them also that we would do it for $110 rather than the customary $145 that we had been charging to see what the volume would be. And I might have to come back to them and raise the price. After 30 days, we did come back and say we would have to raise the price to $120, but that was still an excellent pricing for them. And we continued testing for like four or five months. As a matter of fact, we are still testing individuals across the country.
1: Do you have a pretty big demand for that?
0: Uh, Yes, it seems to be growing as well. Uh, Not only individuals, but we're starting to get various medical schools as well as other corporations that are interested in the agricultural food connection side things.
1: Absolutely, and that's why I so wanted to talk to you because of those links between food health and agriculture and because of the ubiquitous nature of this particular herbicide. Now your lab is not a toxicology lab and it's not a diagnostic lab. You are simply I should, I should use that word very loosely. you are testing in a complex way just the presence of glyphosate, and you're not looking at the breakdown or the metabolite of glyphosate called AMPA. Can you tell me why? Certainly.
0: First of all, we are a microbiology laboratory, environmental microbiology. So we identify organisms, bacteria, yeast, and other fungi. My close friends call me their germinator. He's been their (laughs) germinator, (laughs) eliminating microorganisms from the supply chain from farm to pork, or from ingredient to final product. And so that's our main core. Sure. But because glyphosate interacts with microorganisms and vice versa, we are interested in that's why we were doing the testing for quite a number of years now. The uh, interest is increasing. The microbiology, the organisms, the, the first gene for Roundup-ready soybeans was actually isolated from a bacterium. It was from a pseudomonad. That was isolated from the Luling Waste Pond, one of Monsanto's manufacturing plants in Louisiana, and it was resistant to glyphosate, whereas many organisms are susceptible. So that is where the gene came from that has been placed into soybeans to make soybean Roundup ready, or in other words, resistant to glyphosate, a herbicide which is a broad spectrum herbicide, kills all the weeds but leaves the crop plants.
1: How does it exert its method of action? How does it kill weeds? Okay.
0: It's well known that the target of glyphosate is an enzyme in the shikimic acid pathway. That's the pathway towards aromatic amino acid synthesis, biosynthesis. And that enzyme is called EPSP synthase. And EPSP synthase from the pseudomonads was resistant to the interaction with glyphosate. Therefore, when it is transformed into plant cells enables the plant cell then to uh, continue its function along that pathway without the inhibition that would normally be the action of glyphosate. The glyphosate more than likely has a lot of other types of actions as well, but that's the primary target, EPSP
1: synthase. And we have been told as humans, don't worry about this. We don't contain that pathway, that enzymatic pathway, and so this particular compound won't harm us.
0: Yes, that is the dogma. Uh, That is what has been taught for decades now. And it is true that we do not have that enzyme. Many other animals uh, as well do not have it. And therefore, it is a very effective herbicide. I don't think anyone will argue about how effective it is. You mentioned that we're not toxicologists and that is indeed true. We are in environmental microbiology and function in that realm. But what we're interested in is in the transparency. We believe in transparency in agriculture and we feel that the public deserves to know, even if it's not toxic, that glyphosate, a synthetic molecule, is found wherever it can be found and and how it's being distributed. The purposes for that would be that Even though it may not have toxicity, it still may have some pleiotropic effects, other types of effects that would be unknown to us. And if we hide it, we'll never see the correlation. Or I should say not just correlations, but cause and effect.
1: Right. I have seen reports stating that, well, we humans may not have this particular enzymatic pathway, but the bacteria that live in our guts do. So some of the concern relates to how this particular herbicide may be affecting the gut microbes that we are so dependent upon for a strong immune system and for digesting our food and absorbing nutrients. What do you know about that mechanism?
0: You bet. Microorganisms basically utilize a lot of minerals. And, for example, I'll just take the case of iron. Iron Controls 23 genes in E. coli. Turns them on and off with just a simple 10 parts per million change. That's not a lot of difference in iron will cause that to turn on and off. Now glyphosate is known to be a chelator. I I have heard some pediatricians who speak on behalf of Monsanto indicate that it is not a chelator. They're absolutely wrong. It's known to be a chelator of metals, uh, manganese is certainly one of them. And therefore, if you change the concentration of a metal ion in a population of microorganisms, you will be changing the makeup of that community of organisms. Therefore, I think that the action of glyphosate in many situations is due to its chelation or its ability to bind the metal ion and therefore cause shifts in populations which are unknown beforehand which way they will actually shift because it depends on all the players in the community. So you could have pathogens coming forward as a result of those shifts as a response to glyphosate concentrations. So as the concentrations increase, you set off different triggers.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined today by Dr. Bruce Hemming. He is the Executive Director of the Helix Center Core Lab and President and CEO of Microbe Intertech Laboratories Incorporated, based in St. Louis, Missouri. And we are talking specifically about glyphosate and his expertise as a plant Pathologist and microbiologist in how this ubiquitous compound may be affecting human health and our environment. In terms of plant nutrition, if this compound is a chelator of minerals, I'm assuming that the plants too might not be able to absorb through their root systems some of the minerals that are essential for their health and therefore ours. Am I thinking along the right lines here?
0: Yeah, that's certainly a possibility. Let's say to iron again. And plants take up iron as Fe2 or ferrous iron. And microorganisms take up iron as the oxidized form Fe3 or the ferric iron. And so iron is kind of like the petroleum of the Middle East. Everybody wants to get their hands on it. And each of devised different ways of of trapping or chelating the, the iron. So by any perturbation in the flux uh, and the dynamic flow of iron will cause different changes in the populations. So it is possible that glyphosate, being a chelator, could impact the plant nutrition as well. And I think there is data along that line showing that as plants are treated with glyphosate, that the nutrition, particularly the mineral nutrition, is affected.
1: Yeah. When you did the tests for the Moms Across America samples, were you surprised at all to see the levels that were turning up in your lab, or would you think that those were par for the course if we're going to use it so extensively in our country and, and that there will be residues on our food?
0: Well, being as widely used as it is, it wasn't surprising that we would detect it. You know, it was a bit surprising to detect it in mother's breast milk, when we first saw that, that was amazing. I, I could hardly believe that, and double-checking that uh, definitely, because one, as I indicated earlier, glyphosate is highly water-soluble. So for it to go into the mother's breast milk would be rather unusual. Unfortunately, we did not have a urine sample from that same individual, so those same individuals. Over a period of time, we tested a very small sample. It's only about 10 samples. And three of those 10 turned out to be positive, and they were definitely positive with low level, very low levels of glyphosate. We're talking on the order of one to two, at most 12 parts per billion in any of the samples that we've looked at, be they water, urine, or, or mother's breast milk. So we're talking about vanishingly, vanishingly small, but the impact of it due to chelation could still be there. As I said, it doesn't take too much of a change. turn on and off various gene
1: functions yeah well I'm very interested in the role that this and many other compounds play on our gut microbes I think that if you look at what supplements are selling the most these days you know what are in the top ten people are dealing with some GI issues that we have not been able to really put our finger on in terms of cause and effect And so even though we do see the chelation effects of glyphosate, I'm also curious to know how the glyphosate might also be interacting with other herbicide or pesticide residues that might be in our food or nitrates or, say, some of the other endocrine disruptors that might be present in our diet. So it's this big soup that we're dealing with, and we're trying to tease out individual molecules. I think from a scientific perspective, it must be really difficult to connect the dots.
0: There are a lot of different parameters that come to play. Most recently, there's some work that has been coming out on autism, which really kind of surprised me, where it's been pointed out that the microflora between autistic children and and the normal population are quite significantly different. And it boiled down to one bacterium, which really surprised me, uh, being Lactobacillus ruderi. And that strain turns out to produce a oxytocin-like molecule, which is involved in a lot of different hormonal interactions in in mankind as well. So I, I think there's a lot of factors that we do not know about. And therefore, although we're not toxicologists, we are adept and skillful biochemists, chemists and microbiologists. And the aspect of transparency, I think, is very important. So whether or not it's toxic or not, that's certainly an important issue, but I can't address that. Right. But I can address whether, because it's so widely used, where is it being found? And that's what uh, is really surprising to find out that we are finding it in mother's breast milk. We have found it in, in urine of a lot of different individuals all across the country. We find it in a lot of the food products, such as flour, we find it in a number of the uh, crop plants, which would be more expected because that would be more direct, such as on alfalfa, things of that nature. So, wheat would be one where glyphosate is authorized for use as a drying agent, and therefore it's not unexpected that we would find it in our flour, and therefore our bread products, things of that
1: nature. Yeah, and it's confusing too to the consumer, you know, getting back to the transparency piece because. They may buy bread that has a non-GMO label on it, and I I know I've been in a group before where people have been very confused, thinking, well, it says non-GMO, but then how could there also be glyphosate in it? And I think what people don't understand is that wheat is not genetically engineered. Certainly, there, there have been test plots, but it's not like corn and soy and alfalfa and canola and sugar beets. It's not being planted to be resistant to the spraying of glyphosate, but glyphosate is still being applied to it, as you say, because glyphosate serves as a drying agent. Is that correct?
0: That's correct, and therefore it's widespread use. And so I, I think it's wouldn't be surprised to find it in a lot of different products. And that's why we felt and still feel that it's very important to test across the board various products to determine its extent of its spread. If there are any relationships, we need to know whether or not it's present in a particular product to know if there's even a, a possibility of a relationship. Yeah. So, as I said, knowing nothing about the toxicity, it would still be very important to know whether or not it's found in various products throughout the world.
1: Right. Well, there's no requirement to label foods with regard to their herbicide or pesticide residues, but what I tell consumers as a dietitian, who if there are people who want to avoid this compound and other herbicides and pesticides, their best avenue of food purchasing at this point in time is to choose the organic label. It's the best we've got.
0: Yeah, and that's problematic. It is possible to have organic materials test positive for glyphosate. We've tested California wines and have discovered that uh, both in Organically labeled as well as non organic labeled wine also both have glyphosate.
1: How is that possible if it's not allowed in the organic system?
0: Well, it's possible from the standpoint that possibly the previous year glyphosate may have been treated on a crop, and then on the next year, as it's planted, the residue is still there at the an effective dose to cause the plant to take it up or other factors of that nature. You look at the use, it's so widely used that residues build up. We had talked about the breakdown. Why don't we test for the breakdown of glyphosate, the molecule? The reason we don't is, first of all, we don't have antibodies against that particular molecule. And the method which we are using is called an enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay, competitive assay which basically gets down to below one part per billion. So it's very sensitive. But the other issue is the nature of the presence of glyphosate in different products could be a result of drift in the spraying of the material in the agricultural setting. It could also be, as I said, in the crop rotations, how it's being used and what's left and also the impact that plants themselves, even though they are resistant, say the resistant soybean, it still is exposed to glyphosate levels. And although it's growing, the question is, is would it grow even better nutritionally? Mineral nutrition would be better without the, the glyphosate residues. And the, there is work that kind of indicates that that might be the case.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I am concerned about its ubiquitous nature in our environment because we do have concerns about the mineral chelation. But I do want to let our listeners know that glyphosate or Roundup is not permitted. It's not allowed in the organic system. So if it turns up in an organic product, as you explained, it must be due to drift. Or I have seen reports from the USGS showing that in the Mississippi River watershed in which we both live, glyphosate is present in rainwater.
0: Uh, yes, and it's found in a lot of our different streams. That, that's very true. Mm. So the the question of toxicity is of in great importance. The level that is stated now by the government is relatively high, and we are talking about vanishingly small amounts. But the so that does become an issue on the toxicology side of things. Right. But the, but the distribution is also significant. So we're we're dealing with the distribution side using the skills, knowledge, and instrumentation that we have and are useful in this project. We also are looking at the installation of an LC mass spectrometer, one of these half-million-dollar instruments, and expect within the next three to six months of of having an instrument like that in our laboratory so that we can do both the confirmation and the hand-in-glove type of testing, The Canadian government showed that the assay that we're using is very effective, and they're recommending it for use in water samples, and indicate that 95% of the samples that are submitted for glyphosate testing using an LC mass spec could be done using this assay, saving hundreds of thousands of dollars. So the assay is good, it's solid, and in fact, it was initially developed at Monsanto, and then it went out to the commercial sector and has gone through a number of reiterations and improvements. And that was also agreed upon by uh, two Monsanto toxicologists who visited our lab about two years ago.
1: Well, Dr. Hemming, unfortunately our time is up, but I want to thank you so much for being with me and for explaining your work. I will make sure that we have a link to your lab so people can learn more about what you do. And is there anything you want to leave our listeners with in the last few seconds?
0: Well, if there are any issues relating to microbiology, those are the issues that we are close to our hearts, and we are dead set on solving the mysteries as it relates to microbial communities. So it's been a pleasure speaking with you, and I thank you for the opportunity and the invitation to
1: Okay, thank you. Well, thank you, Dr. Hemming. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And thanks again to Dr. Bruce Hemming. He is the president and CEO of Microbe InnoTech Laboratories, Incorporated, and executive director of the Helix Center Core Lab based in St. Louis, Missouri. Thank you, Dr. Hemming.
0: Thank you.